Be seated. Song of Solomon tonight in our journey through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles with Bibles right now. And get their attention. They'll give you a Bible tonight, and it'll be marked to where we're studying this evening. And if you don't have a Bible, you'll be fairly lost this evening. It's a lot easier to follow along with a Bible. And please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you tonight. Song of Solomon, verse 1. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. So the Song of Solomon was written as a song. The author is given to us here. It is the son of King David, King Solomon. We know from elsewhere in the Old Testament that he wrote 1,005 songs. We know he wrote well over 3,000 proverbs. And we know more about his proverbs than his songwriting uh, gifting. Uh, but he wrote uh, over a thousand songs. And uh, this one is his very best. It is the song of songs. And God has included it in his word. Now, I think that this song is uh, in the scripture not only because it was the very best of those 1,005 songs that he wrote, but it's called the Song of Songs uh, because of the majesty of its theme. And the song is all about love. I mean, you'd think that people would have had enough of silly love songs. I look around me and I see it isn't so. Oh, no. You say to yourself, you mean people were thinking about love and writing songs about love and is captured by the theme of love and the reality of love 3,000 years ago, every bit as much as we are today? Yes, absolutely, they were. Most of the songs that have been written throughout history have had the theme of love, haven't they? I remember when I was a youngster, I would listen to the songs, get the little um, AM, FM, right, right up against the ear for my generation, and uh, you scrounged around to find enough money to keep yourself in batteries so you could listen to KYA and KFRC and uh, out of the Bay Area. And all of these songs, you just listen and say, how many songs can they write about love? Like 95% of them written about love. And it really does seem as if it's an inexhaustible theme, and that's been true throughout all of uh, history. The song is Song of Solomon. There's a lot of different ways that people look at it. Um, the Jews uh, looked at the Song of Solomon and said it was a picture, a poetic picture of the relationship between God the Father and uh, the nation of Israel. Um, Christians um, uh, oftentimes follow in that same vein and say it's a beautiful picture of the love between Jesus Christ and the church because you do have a husband and wife who's pictured in, in the psalm, uh, the song here. And so this must be why it's in the Bible because the Bible says, you know, the volume of the book testifies of Jesus. And so it must speak something of Christ to us, and certainly it does. 
And those have applications for sure. But I'll tell you how I'll look at it over the next couple of weeks. I can't get away from the fact, as much as I have read it many, many, many times and studied it, that it is to me very simply the description of the love and the romance and the passion expressed between a bride and a bridegroom and specifically in this situation between a a young country girl uh, known as the Shulamite and King Solomon. And the background of this uh, song is that it tells the story of King Solomon falling in love with a young woman from one of the northern villages of Israel. Uh, She's referred in the song as the Shulamite, which suggests that she came from the northern village of uh, Shulam. Solomon meets her. He's traveling incognito, so he's kind of got this Elvis thing going on where it's like every once in a while they want to go to Disneyland and pretend they're everybody else, you know. But those kind of people, they typically have a charisma about them and then they do things with their hair or whatever that ends up getting recognized or they've got glasses that are just a little bit too big. Uh, They start to draw attention to themselves, the sunglasses. So he decides he's going to go to the north and he's not going to be this big announcement that the king is coming up and all. And he owned, of course, vineyards all around the nation of Israel, owned vineyards up in the north. And so he goes up there. She's working at her family's vineyard. And somehow he catches sight of her and pursues her. And then Solomon returns to the capital, to Jerusalem, and later he returns in splendor to carry her back uh, to Jerusalem. And so there is that picture of Christ in there, uh, Jesus coming from this higher place, this uh, higher position, coming into the world, uh, spotting us as the bride of Christ, and then uh, to return us back to where he lives. It breaks down quicker than most imagery in terms of Christ in the Old Testament, but uh, you can see it there. Uh, if you want to see uh, see that there, and I certainly see it as well. But the letter, uh, the song here is a tasteful and I will say an equally unashamed celebration of the emotional and physical aspects of marital love as ordained by God in creation. And in going through this particular book, Um, I will try to keep my comments on the PG level, Uh, but those of you who are familiar with the book or you want to go deeper into the book in terms of the poetic imagery that's in there, uh, this can go to some very interesting places, but we won't be that uh, minute in our exploring of the book, but that shouldn't keep you from doing that. You say, well, this is church. You shouldn't be going to PG at all. You should stay at G. No, listen, if you just read it, it's PG. It's already PG on its own. It doesn't need any help from me uh, at all. Now, I think that this whole realization that the book is supremely a celebration of the emotional and physical aspects of marital love, I think it's important to remember that the physical, the sexual relationship between a husband and wife is God's idea entirely. In Genesis chapter 1, 
God records, then God blessed them, that is Adam and Eve, and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Now, how many ways did he give them to be fruitful and to multiply? He gave them one way. And so the sexual relationship between a husband and a wife, that was and is a gift from God to them. In Genesis chapter 2, it records, Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and she and he brought, that is, the Lord brought her, Eve, to the man. And Adam said, This now is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife. They shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. And so God is the one who has created the physical relationship between a husband and a wife. Sex is pre-fall in the Bible. And you remember at the end of the creation, God looked at all of it and he declared it to be very good. There's nothing naughty or nasty or terrible or secret or anything to be ashamed about in terms of uh, this gift that God has given to mankind to be expressed within uh, the marriage relationship. And in fact, um, only God can tell us how to be healthy in this area in our life. As in any area, he's the creator, he's the maker. You see all these articles. I mean, if you're waiting in line like I am sometimes at a store or whatever, and then they've got the Cosmo magazine and the what and the what and the what and the what on, you know, a healthy sex life and a healthy this and a healthy, healthy, healthy related to the uh, sexual relationship and everything. Only God knows what is healthy in this area. Everybody else is just playing games with a, God, a gift that God gave to mankind but gave to mankind with parameters upon it so that it can be the, the blessing that he intends it to be. The reason why it's so important to mention all of this, at least I feel that it's important, is the fact that the world and the devil have now come along and they now claim to be the experts on sex. And they do more than that. They not only claim to be the experts on sex, but they also then declare uh, God to be out of step related to sex, that he's a big square related to the issue, he's a killjoy on the issue, which is to have it exactly backwards. God is the expert. Uh, people are not the experts, and all they know how to do is to mar and sully this gift from God. The average person's conception, I think, of uh, or perception of, of Christians and sex is that uh, we couldn't know the first thing about it because surely our God, the God of the Bible, is so uptight about the subject. And isn't it fascinating? I mean, you live in the same world that I live in. There's this whole idea that God is just all uptight about sex. And you look at it and you go, have you ever read the Bible? You ever read Genesis chapters 1 and 2? God ordained it. God created it. And I think to myself when I, this whole perception of things is, is put forth, have you ever read the Song of Solomon that happens to be in his book? I mean, you read the Song of Solomon. I mean, I mean this song is steaming hot. 
It has everything but Barry White singing in the background. So don't lecture God on this area of life or who knows what in the world uh, this is all about. And this song, I mean, it's so pure, it's so free, it's so joyous, it's so uninhibited and to explore and to enjoy this area of life with someone who is committed enough to you to marry you. And when it is expressed within the confines of that commitment called marriage, then it is a beautiful, sacred, holy experience. And the Song of Solomon is a wonderful combination of two things. It affirms, unashamedly affirms and encourages sexual pleasure. And, but at the same time, it declares that it is to be explored and enjoyed solely within the commitment of marriage. And I think that the letter, the song here rather is um, important not only for those who are married for instruction, but also for those who are not married. Because again, only God has a healthy perspective on this subject, and it's important to know it because it's an important subject. There are three main speakers in the song. There's the king, who is Solomon. There is the bride, or the beloved, the Shulamite. And then third, there are the daughters of Jerusalem. They're kind of attendants, or we might say best friends of uh, the Shulamite. And they make up this little choir that uh, chimes in every so often through the song uh, with some brief uh, speeches or brief uh, warnings. And so we begin now in earnest in verse 2 with uh, the Shulamite and Solomon uh, remembering their courtship and also their wedding. She said, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is better than wine because of the fragrance of your good ointments. Your name is ointment poured forth. Therefore, the virgins love you. Lead me away. And so she is thinking about him on their uh, wedding day. She's in love. She wants to kiss him. A kiss is a wonderful thing, isn't it? Sometimes people are asked, do you remember your first kiss? Most people do. Yeah, it was little Jimmy Hancock in the third grade, and I didn't see it coming. We were playing tetherball, and he had an older brother that put him up to it. You know, it was a peck on the cheek, but, but a kiss is a wonderful thing. It's a beautiful thing. You say, where do kisses come from? Oh, it's right in the Bible. It's a wonderful thing to kiss the person that you love. She likens his love, verse 2, to wine. Wine is a symbol of joy in the Bible, and it makes one forget about everything else in life, all of the cares in life, a little bit of wine. And so she's saying, so too, his love has produced that kind of joy in her life, caused her uh, to rise up above all of the cares surrounding her life. In verse 3, his name is like an ointment poured forth, the very mention of his name. I don't know what it's like for you, different generations, but... 
when I was in high school when uh, two people would kind of get goo-goo eyes toward one another. You had to cover all your books in those days. And then the next thing you know, who's writing whose name on the top of it. And then if she was really, you know, nuts about the guy or whatever, she'd write his name on her jeans or whatever kind of thing, you know. So um, something about a name, the very mention of his name, she said, it's like an ointment. Somebody, you're just in a room and you're talking and all of these things and somebody mentions, she said, somebody mentions his name and the whole atmosphere of the room changes. And some of you might be many years removed from that kind of an excitement related to the mention of your husband or your wife's name. But it was there at one time, you remember it, and uh, she's remembering it as well. And so she says, lead me away to him. I'm yours. The daughters of Jerusalem chime in. They share her joy and they say, we will run after you. And so here she is. She's in love. And she's got these friends and these friends of hers, they're all virgins as well um, as she was before her wedding. And... um, And so they're not married yet. They don't know anything about being married. They're not about to be married. But she's in love. She's found the man that she's going to be married. And so they don't have this dynamic of she can't share her joy with them because it's going to make Sally jealous and it's going to make Evelyn, you know, wonder about the fact that, you know, she's not with anybody or anything like this. She's just free to express this relationship with Solomon and they are the quality of kind of girlfriends in her life that they're as excited for her almost as she seems to be as well. And then the Shulamite, uh, in uh, the end of verse 4, the king has brought me into his chambers. And so speaking about the wedding ceremony is over, the reception are over, and now she's brought into his chambers. The daughters of Jerusalem declare, we will be glad and rejoice in you. We will remember your love uh, more than wine. And then uh, the Shulamite says, rightly do they love you. And in verse 5, she begins now to uh, describe her wedding night. She says, uh, I am dark but lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon, do not look upon me because I'm dark, because the sun has tanned me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards. But my own vineyard, speaking of her own appearances, personal appearance, I have not kept. And so here she is on her wedding night. She's self-conscious. I think most people are self-conscious on their wedding night a little bit, and uh, at least, and she is self-conscious and insecure about a physical imperfection that she believes that she has. Solomon can't see any imperfection in her, but how he thinks and how she thinks on the wedding night is a little bit uh, different. So she's got this dark tan and uh, the tents of Kedar, it's referred to here, their tents were black, uh, referring to the curtains of Solomon. They were dark. They were made of goat's hair. So she's self-conscious about the fact that she, is, uh, that she has a deep, dark tan as a part of her uh, complexion. And it makes her self-conscious. It makes her uh, uh, feel 
self-conscious because she it made her different in the circles of kind of the upper group of people in Jerusalem. Now today we've got tanning booths and people lie out in the sun. Don't lie out in the sun. Do you see these bandages? This is a surgery. This is probably a future surgery. But anyway, people go to these tanning booths and uh, lie out in the sun and do all of these different kinds of things. And today, you know, it's a picture of health. It's a, you know, sometimes it's a picture of people who have enough leisure time to be able to do that. But in those days, if you were kind of in the upper levels of society, uh, you refrained from going out into the sun. So you were, even though you were Jewish, you were more pale complected as a result of it. To have a tan or to have, you know, tan marks or a farmer's tan or whatever it might be on your neck or on your arms, that was a sign that you were part of the service class, that you were a laborer, this uh, kind of thing. And so here she is. She's been swept off of her feet. She's married the king. Now she's in this environment, and she is tanned in an environment in which nobody else is tanned. So she feels self-conscious uh, about it. It exposed her class. It exposed her uh, station in uh, life. And nobody would have thought that the king would marry a queen who was coming from the working class, uh, but it happened. We know from verse 6, we can guess that her father, her uh, biological father had died, but that her mother biological mother had remarried another man, had sons out of that marriage, and so she had younger brothers that all while she was growing up, they kept her busy out in the vineyards and, and out in the orchards and all, and kept her busy working hard in the fields without giving her time to think about her own vineyard or her own personal appearance. In verse 7, She's recalling the early days of of their courtship when they first met. She said, tell me, O you whom I love, where do you feed your flock? Where do you make it rest at noon? She says uh, to Solomon, for why should I be as one who veils herself by the uh, flocks of your uh, companions? And the beloved responds to her, Solomon does, If you do not know, O fairest among women, follow in the footsteps of the flock and feed your little goats beside the shepherd's tents. And so uh, she thought when she first met him here in verse 7 that he was just a simple shepherd and uh, she longed for a chance to meet him. And that's always something when there's that kind of a connection and you say, ooh, who's that, you know? And uh, there's that interest, and she's wanting to know a little bit more about him and longs for a chance to meet him. And she says that if it didn't occur, verse 7, she'd veil herself. In other words, if I don't meet that guy and learn a little bit more about him, it's I'm going to go into mourning. And Solomon in verse 8 gives her a hint at where... Uh, he could be found. And it's not unusual. All of this is going on uh, on their uh, wedding night. It's not unusual on a wedding night to go uh, back and to think about these kinds of things, to just sit there and you look at one another and you say, who'd have thought that first time we 
uh, looked across the room and I saw you at this place or at that barbecue or whatever it might be, the chili cook-off or whatever it might be, that here it would end up like this. And there's just that desire to recount. Remember when we first met and all of that uh, beauty is happening right here in the passage. Now, Solomon is a man who understands the uh, importance of compliments. She's spoken about her insecurity, about her complexion, her tan, and, and she's, um, she's needing to be reassured. She's fishing for compliments, and, and Solomon is a wise man, and he recognizes this is going on, so he reassures her uh, uh, concerning her beauty, and he says in verse 9, I have compared you, my love, to my filly among Pharaoh's chariots. Now, men, don't try that at home. Uh, that's not a good line for you, but it meant a lot in those, uh, in those days. So he says, he declares her to be my filly among Pharaoh's chariots. A filly is a female horse, three years of age or younger. Uh, the chariots would have been pulled, of course, by stallions or by males. And so to have a filly uh, would have been a very, very unique, very unusual among the horses that uh, were a part of, of the chariots. And a filly would have definitely had uh, been the center of attention. So Solomon is saying that in his opinion, she's as beautiful and to be sought after as if she was the only woman in a world full of men. Wouldn't that be something? You would, I, would, I would chase after you as if you were the only woman in a world full of men. Well, you say that doesn't do anything for me. Well, that's, that's the distance of 3,000 years. But she was very, very uh, happy with it. He then went on to say, um, your cheeks are lovely with ornaments. She's probably wearing earrings that are, you know, big with hoops or something. They come over in the area of her uh, cheeks. Your neck with chains of gold. And so he's talking about how beautifully bejeweled she is. And, uh, and, uh, and he, he realizes this woman is head over heels in love with me. And he, and he looks at that and he considers that something to be prized. And he, he doesn't take advantage of that. And it's important not to do that. It's important for both the husband and the wife to be equally um, in love, head over heels in love with one another and attracted to one another and appreciative of one another. There's an old saying, and there's a lot of truth to it, that the person who loves the least in a marriage exerts the most power. And they really, really do. But it's a very destructive power and a very negative power. The person, if the husband loves the wife less than the wife loves the husband, then he has a, a power in that relationship that is unhealthy. It's a strong power, but it shouldn't exist within a marriage. There should be this mutual love for one another. Never, ever, ever be a part 
of that kind of a place, of being in a marriage where your spouse loves you more than you love them, and now you're tempted to use that against that spouse, against that person. It's a a terrible, uh, ugly, cruel thing. We never want to uh, do it. And that kind of thing was completely absent in their relationship. They're just wildly and deeply in love uh, with one another. And when he states that she was beautiful with jewelry, notice in verse 11 that the daughters of Jerusalem then promised to provide her with even more jewelry. We will make you ornaments of gold with studs of silver. And so uh, if he likes this, if it blesses you, then we'll make even more jewelry for you. And again, there's no... Um, there's no envy, there's no jealousy, there's none of those dynamics in it. They're just rejoicing in the fact that she is uh, married and, and this relationship has come into her life. And it's a beautiful, uh, beautiful thing. Then in verse uh, 12, you have the Shulamite uh, rejoicing over the fact that they get to spend uh, uh, the sleep together all night long. She says, while the king is at his table, my spikenard sends forth its fragrance. A bundle of myrrh is my beloved to me that lies all night between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blooms in the vineyards of An Gedi. And so uh, it was common in the ancient world uh, for a woman to wear a small uh, kind of a packet of perfume or myrrh uh, or uh, henna blooms, whatever it might be. She'd wear it around her neck, a necklace, and it would lie between her breasts all night long. Then the next day, uh, this lovely fragrance would linger about her as a result of it. And she's saying that beginning that night, it would be her husband who would lie uh, with her in that place. And she's talking about a joy, not just about the physical relationship of the honeymoon or the first night of being married, as wonderful as that is, and they're going to get into this in just a moment. But there's something wonderful. Again, if marriage is done, if the sexual relationship is done God's way, there's something wonderful about your wedding night being the first night that you spend together where you go to sleep at night and then you wake up in the morning and you're still together in that bed. And just what the world has done to sex, how casual it's become and, and all, they're, just, they're taking such beautiful, precious, divine experiences that God wants people to have. Their people are being robbed of that. And that can even seem kind of like Silly in the in the hardness with which um, sex is practiced in in the culture that we live in, but it should be something wonderful to say tonight. Not only are we going to know one another physically, but we're going to now for the rest of our lives be able to sleep together, go to bed at night together, wake up together uh, in the morning, and it is a wonderful, wonderful memory. In life, I certainly remembered it and consider it one of the blessings of uh, my life. It's also interesting to notice how much uh, 
Fragrance is used in the book, the sense of smell, all these allusions to fragrance and scents uh, within the book. Verse 15, now we've got this back and forth that occurs between the, uh, between the husband and the wife Solomon and the Shulamite, these expressions of love, these reassurances uh, that they give one another. And he says in verse 15 to her, Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes. And one of the interesting things to know about doves is that doves uh, are, uh, as a bird, they remain faithful to their mate all through their life. That's not consistent in the animal kingdom and not consistent even within uh, the, the bird part of the animal kingdom. But it's true of, of doves. And so it's a, this beautiful expression of his confidence in her faithfulness uh, to him. And she then declares in verse 16, Behold, you are handsome, my beloved, you big old hunk of a man. And uh, every guy likes to hear that, even when he's skin and bones, you still like to hear it. Yes, pleasant. Also, uh, our bed is green. The beams of our house are cedar and our rafters are uh, of fur. And so she tells him how handsome he is, how attractive he is uh, to her. And uh, verses 16 and 17 reveal to us where a large part of their courtship was uh, uh, spent. It was they fell in love outdoors. The green couch refers to a grassy meadow, the cedar, the fur, to the trees that they sat under for shade. And then uh, she declares in uh, verse 1, I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valley. And so she describes herself uh, as the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valley. And as they're on this kind of this grassy meadow there, uh, there would have been thousands of these flowers, these lily uh, of uh, lilies of the valley. And so she's probably declaring that she's just common. No one has ever shown this kind of interest in me before. There's millions of girls just like me. And what made you choose me? And again, she's fishing for compliments. She's fishing for, and she has a need to feel special. She wants reassurance and in uh, the relationship. And no husband should miss that kind of a uh, opportunity. And Solomon uh, certainly didn't. He said, like a lily among thorns, so is my love among the daughters. So he calls her a lily among thorns compared to all other women. In other words, nobody compares uh, to you. All other women are thorns in comparison. I tell you, you can't Compliment your wife too much or reassure her uh, enough. You ever had your wife say, just the husband, scales, you just tune out for a moment. You just go, ah, 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 ah. Uh, just sing a song. Precious and few are the most. No, just some song. But ever had your wife ask you if you love her? It's a constant question, isn't it? It's a healthy thing too, I think. It is to say, well, listen, I, I told you I loved you on the day that I got married, and if I ever change my mind, I'll let you know. <laughs> Just know to look at me is to know that I love you. No, they want a little bit more than that. And, uh, and uh, the Shulamite did, and Solomon recognized that, that she did, and so he compliments her. 
and, uh, and she loves every bit of it, and it's a healthy thing. And then she declares concerning him, like an apple tree among the trees of the woods, you're like an apple tree among the fir or the evergreen, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down in his shade with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. And so uh, she declares him to be an apple tree among the trees of the woods. In other words, and here you've got an apple tree in the middle of the forest. You say, that's unique. That's different. That's special. That's rare. And so she's declaring him to be uh, a rare find among all uh, other men. And then she tells her friends, uh, beginning in verse 4, uh, how wonderful marriage is and how she can't bear to be apart from uh, her husband and that all of this is worth the wait. He brought me to the banqueting house and his banner over me was love. And so she's saying, he brought me into his life and here I was, this peasant girl and this farm girl out in this and he brought me into her world, into his world and uh, and into the banqueting house. He's not ashamed of me in any way. He's openly delighted in me, introduced me to the whole family. And like I was a special find, his banner over me was love. He openly expressed his uh, and displayed his love for her and his treatment of her. And, and it was as apparent as a banner being carried by an army going in uh, to battle. And she noticed all of this, his, his kind treatment of, uh, of her. Sustain me with the cakes of raisins. Refresh me with apples, for I am lovesick. She's faint with love, and she needed the nourishment and the refreshment that these would provide. Verse 6, his left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. And here you have a very discreet description of uh, sexual intimacy on their marriage night. And while she's uh, describing that very carefully and discreetly, she then goes on and declares to the daughters of Jerusalem, uh, her friends, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the does of the field, by all that is innocent and all that is pure in life, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. And so she warns them. She's essentially saying, listen, do exactly what I've done. Come into your wedding night as a virgin. Come in and don't awaken love. Don't awaken this physical relationship until the night uh, of your uh, your marriage and uh, don't awaken it before it's time and it's time is God's time. And so she said this love is to be patiently waited for. No premarital sex. Uh, it's not to be awakened until marriage and it can only be what God wants it to be within the context of marriage, within that environment of love and a lifelong commitment to one another. And so she declares, she says, listen, do it, do it God's way. And she declares that it was worth the wait to do it God's way in order to enjoy this with someone who was committed to her in this way. I remember reading an article, and there's lots of things like this that you can read. But every once in a while, I think it was the Atlantic Magazine, and uh, the Atlantic Magazine 
is, um, I, I don't read it regularly, but when I've been directed to it by one thing or another, I have found that uh, the articles to be more than just, you know, a half page long on a superficial dealing with a subject. They'll maybe give 20 pages to a particular article. And they, I, I was read it, uh, an article within a magazine, I think it was The Atlantic, in which they interviewed a number of women who had grown up in the uh, midst of kind of the free sex and the sexual revolution thing that's been going on in the United States and uh, since the 1960s. And these women had done the entire scene. They had been uh, sexually promiscuous. And now they were, each of them were mothers of teenage daughters. And every single one of them, we're not talking about a Christian magazine, and we're not talking about Christians. Every single one of them, without exception, spoke about the regret of their promiscuous past. And every one of them wished that they had handled their sexuality and that part of their life in a different way than they did And every one of them expressed the fact that they were determined that now the mothers of teenage daughters, that their daughters would not follow them into the same mistakes that they made. Well, you know, there's a lot of that regret in life. And and a lot of that kind of regret can be in a room like this. So, but we don't pass over the fact that, you know, what needs to be said needs to be said from God's Word. But there are so many people who could stand up and just say, listen to those of you who have, are doing things God's way. They would join in with the Shulamite and say, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. Do it God's way. It is worth it if you'll do it and then experience the full blessing that is found in God's way if it's allowed uh, to happen that way and play out the way that it's supposed to. And, and uh, so that amen, even today when people are being honest, people are saying amen to what the Shulamite says here. God's way and truth concerning sex is as true today as Ever it was 3,000 years ago. And I just feel terrible. I feel terrible for how ripped off now multiplied generations in the world and certainly in the Western world has been in this area, taught in education, taught by, um, you know, in public education, taught in. Uh, by entertainment, music, movies, all these different things, indoctrinated in a certain way to view this relationship as just a throwaway thing, as if we're just animals and, and just mating like, you know, primates or dogs or canines or something. And then so often people don't realize what's been lost until it's been been lost. And so, again, another reason for the Song of Solomon to 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 be not only uh, known and understood by those who are married, but also those who are unmarried as yet. Only God knows what he's talking about. Only he knows what he's talking about in this area. This area of life is sacred. It is sacred. It is a sacred act. 
And it isn't just to be shared with anyone, much less some anonymous somebody. It's only for the commitment of marriage. And so the importance of staying pure. And, you know, staying pure for your wedding day, for the one who is uh, willing to marry you and commit their life to you, and it's a wonderful, what I call a creep filter in, in life. If someone will not have anything to do with you because you won't have sex with them before marriage, count your blessings while they walk away. Because that person is telling you that they love themselves more than they love you. And the sooner you discover that, the better. And the fact that the society is so promiscuous, there isn't this test given to love. Even the, the faintest tests given to love, to test whether a person really cares about me for me rather than what they can get from me. And it's a great thing, it's a great test. A person that really loves you will... Uh, will love you for the totality of who you are and they will never walk away from you because you haven't had sex with them before marriage. So that's a creep and uh, let them go. Uh, hit the road toad, let them move right on, head on, on to whatever disaster they're headed to, but you never lost anything. That person was a loser and don't regret that. And I don't even need to get into their spirituality. One of the problems with awakening love uh, before it pleases, before the marriage, uh, the uh, marriage relationship, between, before someone is married, is that once the physical relationship starts between um, a man uh, and a woman, it tends to become the focus of the relationship. Um, if not for the woman, it certainly does for the man. And the physical side of the relationship starts to use up all of the oxygen in the room. And, and it does so at the expense of all of the other areas of the relationship. All of the other areas of the, relationships, uh, of the relationship never develop properly or fully once the sexual relationship starts, the emotional part of the relationship, the intellectual part of the relationship, to say nothing of the spiritual part of the relationship. And you can even end up marrying a stranger. Sometimes you get people through the years that have had people come in and the tremendous uh, marriage problems and or they'll come in to see a counselor of some kind and they're having all kinds of problems now and they got married and, and they've been involved with one another sexually for years before they got married and they'll say something like, I thought we knew each other. I mean, after all, we've been sleeping together for three years. But you can have sex with another person for three years and never learn anything about them emotionally. Never know what they think about life. Never know one single deep feeling about them. And you end up marrying a stranger. And it's a, it's a terrible, terrible place to find oneself in. Again, God is wise in all of this. And this is one of the reasons. It's crazy. But one of the reasons why the divorce rate is higher for those who've lived together 
before marriage than those who don't. You would think it would be lower. You'd think, well, they've lived together with one another, so they must know each other better, and so their marriage must, of course, going to have a greater odds of surviving. The statistics are the polar opposite of that conclusion because you don't get to know another person as a person the way that you otherwise would be forced to Uh, without opening up the distraction of the sexual relationship before marriage. And that's to say nothing of the whole lack of respect that sometimes goes uh, with all of that. Now, in verse 8, she recalls how exciting it was to see him coming when he would come and visit her and uh, when they were engaged and how every chance for them to be together was special. And so she talks about her anticipation of when he would uh, come. I mean, we all remember waiting for the the date, you know, to be with the person that we love, and it's 6 o'clock, and, you know, it's 3 in the afternoon, and you've already brushed your teeth eight times, and, you know, you're waiting for this. The voice of my beloved... Behold, he comes leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or like a young stag. He's strong and he's agile. Behold, he stands behind our wall. He's looking through the windows, uh, gazing through uh, the lattice. And so uh, she, her thoughts are filled with Uh, his attractiveness, his strength, his agility. And he approached the wall around her parents' house and he peered through the lattice. He's anxious to see her. In verse 10, we have his formal arrival. My beloved spoke and he said to me, Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. For lo, the winter is past. The rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth. The time of singing has come. And the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree put, uh, puts forth her green figs. And the vines with their t- the tender grapes give a good smell. Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. And so he arrives in spring. And, uh, and so he likens their, their love is likened to, uh, spring. Uh, their love is blooming at the same time that the earth is blooming. And love really does have a way of making life feel like spring. It brings energy. It brings life into our life. And, uh, that's what she's, uh, expressing, uh, here. And then in verse 15, this is an interesting verse. Uh, Catch us the foxes. This appears to be her brother speaking to her. Catch us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines. For our vines have tender grapes. So here are the younger brothers. He comes to her. She's supposed to be working in the field. Now she's distracted. They say, get back to work and chase away the uh, little foxes that are destroying the vines. And in that age, one of the threats to a vineyard was that foxes would come and dig up the roots and they would uh, destroy uh, the the vineyard. And so they uh, speak to her and tell her to get back to work in essence. And of course, little brothers, they don't know anything about love, do they? 
and uh, so they say, catch the little foxes and, uh, and take them out of the vineyard before they destroy the vineyard. And this little kind of parable spoken in the context of marriage is very, very important. Foxes were little things compared to the largeness of the vineyard. But it just the idea is that it just takes a little thing to destroy a whole vineyard. And it just takes little foxes to destroy a marriage. The little things that can completely destroy a vineyard or a marriage. And so often it's the little problems in a marriage that are left unaddressed, that are allowed to multiply rather than being addressed and being corrected that end up destroying intimacy in marriage and then end up destroying the marriage itself. And the marriage ends up getting buried under a hundred small problems that come up in any marriage, in any uniting of two human lives. There's going to be problems, things that need to be addressed and talked through. But if they're ignored or they're just stuffed or internalized and the problems aren't addressed and they aren't solved, then they multiply and uh, and and they become more and more and more in number because nothing is ever being uh, uh, resolved at, at, at any time. And then left unaddressed for a long period of time, the problems then in the marriage seem to be so many that the marriage seems to be without hope. And I, I don't doubt that much of what ends up in the divorce courts today under the banner of irreconcilable differences really falls into this category. They can't, they, can't, they can't blame one thing. They can't name one thing, not one thing for why this thing is ending. And it's, it's just everything. Everything is wrong in this marriage. Everything is wrong in this relationship. And you say to them, well, did you like one another at one time? I mean, did you ever have that kind of goo-goo-eye experience and have some electricity? Was there ever any of that? Yes, of course, there was all of that. Of course, that was uh, there. Ah, oh, okay, so it exists. It was a part of the marriage at one time. Well, that's all still there, but it's buried with unaddressed differences. And usually we'll say something like this to someone in that position, let's start by identifying two or three of those things that are bearing your marriage. And let's get those problems solved. Let's get those little foxes out of the marriage, out of the vineyard, and let's get unburied from all of these problems. And then a week from now, we'll tackle two or three more and two or three more. And then pretty soon, you realize we don't really have irreconcilable differences. We just had a bunch of little problems that we never addressed, and they ended up burying us. But we couldn't see it for the right before our eyes. And and uh, the importance of addressing problems right away rather than just ignoring them and hope that they'll just solve themselves or go away on their own. And I'll tell you, if you're in that kind of a place here tonight where you look and you say, oh, this is kind of embarrassing, but you've described my marriage. And I don't have the slightest idea. We are so buried. This is so far gone down the road. And I wouldn't know how to spot a fox 
at this point in time, we are both feeding the foxes in our marriage. We're setting up pens for them. We're giving them Viagra. We've got them multiplying like crazy in our marriage, and we don't even know, but we need a little bit of help. And just make an appointment with one of the pastors and say, you know, what the pastor was talking about there, that's me or that's us. Would you help us get unburied from these little foxes? And God does it and he loves to do it. She's confident uh, in the love of her husband. My beloved is mine and I am his. He feeds his flock among the lilies. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee away, turn, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag upon the mountains of uh, Bether. And, and so beautiful when both people are very confident in their, the love of one another within the marriage. Now, in, uh, beginning here in chapter 3, while they're going together, um, she's so much in love with him that she, uh, he begins to dominate her dreams. And she begins to have these fears that she's going to lose him. She starts to have nightmares. Of course, one of the nightmares that anyone would have, you read about it every so often, if this has ever happened to you, I am so sorry, but you'll read about somebody, the husband or the wife, not showing up on the day of the wedding day. And the whole thing is called off at the last moment. And so she's got this kind of anxiety a little bit. And what if he doesn't show up for the wedding? What if he changes his mind? And we can torment ourselves with this uh, kind of thing. And so she says, by night on my bed, I sought the one I love. I was dreaming about him. I sought him, but I couldn't find him. I will rise now, I said, and go about the city, in the streets, in the squares. I will seek the one I love. I sought him, but I did not find him. The watchmen who go about the city, they found me, uh, to whom I said, Have you seen the one I love? And scarcely had I passed by when I found the one I love, and I held him and would not let him go, the emotion of it, until I had brought him to the safest place I know, till I brought him to the house of my mother and into the chamber of her who uh, conceived me. And so she brought, she says, I know the safest place to bring him, my fiancé, and that is to my mother's house. Nothing like a mother to watch out for a fiancé. And so she brought him there. I charge you, she says once again, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. And uh, we'll stop there tonight, pick things up in verse 6, and look to finish actually the book next week. And um, so some repetition as we start to move from this point, laid the foundation here tonight. And we come uh, to their actual wedding night, uh, beginning in chapter uh, 3, verse 6, which again, Lord willing, we'll look to cover next week. So uh, beautiful, beautiful book, uh, The Song of Solomon. So let's have the worship team come forward, like them to lead us in a uh, worship song. It'd be very interesting to see what they choose for us tonight.